I'm Jake Watson, and this is the Saints Unscripted podcast, where we have conversations about faith crisis, topics that may be triggering about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Gospel, church history, prophets, the Book of Mormon and the Bible, and so many other things. This is Season 1, Faith Crisis. I take that to mean, and it, and it seems to, to have application in my own life, that we can return <clears throat> to a condition of trust and of faith and confidence and a kind of childlike delight in the goodness of life and in the abundance that the gospel opens up to us. But it's not going to feel like it did the first time. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Saints Unscripted podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Taro Givens uh, on the podcast. Welcome, Taro. Good to be here. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. And, and thanks so much for uh, being so generous and kind with all the knowledge and expertise that you have. Uh, I was uh, I really wanted to invite Taro on the podcast because uh, one day I found myself reading his newest book. Uh, it's right here. It's uh, All Things New, Rethinking Sin, Salvation, and Everything in Between. And it was written by Fiona and Terrell Givens. And Terrell, do you mind introducing yourself a little bit and let us know what we should know about you? Well, for many years, I was a professor of literature and religion uh, and had a, an endowed chair in English at the University of Richmond, Virginia. I taught mostly 19th century studies. Uh, as of almost two years ago, I relocated to BYU, where I'm the Neely Maxwell Senior Research Fellow. Um, so continuing my work mostly now, of course, in Latter-day Saint history and, and theology. Oh, thanks, Daryl. Thanks. So let's just go right in. I, I mentioned that I had read this, uh, this book and I am also, I also have his other works. We have the God who weeps here and I have, uh, the Christ who heals as well. And I was just super excited when this came out and it was, it was such a, such a blessing it. And so maybe we can go right in because I felt like this book was kind of a different perspective than what I had started out with. Because when I started out with this, you know, I guess if we call it a, a faith crisis, right? Or maybe just more of a faith struggle or a faith wrestle or a faith adventure that, okay, I have to look at all these issues that I'm having and I have to go one by one and fix every single one. And then by this time, you know, I actually thought by March 2021 that I would... <laughs> that I had this goal set in mind to stop worrying so much about God and stop worrying so much about the gospel and, and you know, et cetera, right? There are so many things. And it, that wasn't the case for me. And I feel like, if anything, it has gotten deeper. And those issues of, of you know, tr typical church history issues, race in the priesthood and and all that, and and prophets and everything, polygamy, they they didn't. Uh, I hesitate to say bother me so much, but they, they it didn't seem like that was the issue anymore. It wasn't the core issue, and it was, and it's very frustrating because it's it feels ambiguous. It feels like this confusing unknown weight is the best way I can describe it, and. And the only other thing I know about it is it has to do with God. <laughs> and so Terrell and Fiona's work is really helpful in that regard. And I, and I just want to start it out. It, 
it's uh, when we think of rethinking sin, salvation, everything in between, you start out with two kind of pivotal, important issues or features that were lost. And you talk about one is our pre-mortality or our eternal nature as, 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 as humans and as children of God. And then two is, is the parenthood of God. And that, that seemed to impact me the f- first and the most with reading in your book. And it's pretty much what the book is about. <laughs> um, but maybe you can talk about that as far as approaching that issue when you're already struggling to believe in God and, and, and maybe explain some reasons why you included that in your book and then maybe how that can help someone who's, who's struggling to know and think of God um, anyway, I'll just uh, maybe get some of your thoughts on that. Sure. Uh, somebody once observed that that Mormonism has a kind of CD-ROM theology. Um, and what they meant by that was we seem to have a kind of patchwork. We have a kind of quilt or mosaic of doctrines and ideas. And, and we often teach the gospel as this kind of set of right principles and teachings and we throw, you know, eternal families in there and temple work and priesthood and word of wisdom. And, and you know, what I want to know is what's the master narrative? What's the big story in light of which we make sense of ourselves, our place in this world and, and what we're doing, where we're going. And what I love most about the restoration of Joseph Smith is that it provides this radically new story. And it's a grand story that begins in the pre-existence and extends into future eternities. And if you frame the story differently, then you change the meaning of everything that takes place between the first and last pages of that story. And, it, you know, it, it, one way that Fiona and I approached this book was to ask, what did Christianity mean to the first generation of Christians? What, what was the compelling driving force behind the growth of the church in the early Christian years? And we're, we're convinced, reading the first, the earliest church fathers, that, that it was a particular conception of God as a loving father. And we hear that, but it's become a cliche to us. It's become kind of this empty label uh, that can be metaphorical or allegorical or vague. But the earliest Christians really believed in a paternal love. And they believed in that because it was embodied in Christ. And they saw him as a perfect reflection of the Father. And so this love was absolute. It was uncompromising. It was reliable and unyielding. And as a consequence, these early Christians had the confidence that Life was good once one embraced the gospel, once one embraced one's identity, one's relationship to the divine. And they were reborn into this abundant life. And it, the, the, the other aspect of the gospel that was known, it seems to me, imperfectly, but certainly taught by many of the earliest church fathers, certainly understood by, by many of the Jews, as we see in John chapter 9, was this notion that we had existed before as eternal beings. Now, those aren't just two kind of happenstance ideas that add a new dimension to Mormonism. They found 
everything that unfolds therefrom. If you believe that God is literally our parent, then you know that he isn't a sovereign. He isn't waiting to judge us. He isn't testing us to see if we get it right. He isn't waiting at the finish line to see if we, if we cross the goal. He has the kind of empathy and loyalty and devotion that a father has for a child. And we believe that the only way that the sons of God would have shouted for joy in that pre-creation scene in Job is if we had been assured that his love was going to bring every one of us back home to the eternal family. And so we think that what Joseph Smith offered the world was an optimism and a confidence and a, and a security about God's desire and capacity to, to exalt the entire human family. And knowing that the story starts in the pre-existence, then suddenly all of everything that happens in Eden, all of the travails of our lives, all of the mistakes that we make become part of a deliberate process that was planned and envisioned from the beginning. And so we don't start with that kind of pessimistic sense that God has to redeem us from this catastrophe, that we're depraved and in need of saving from hell. But rather, we see ourselves as these children, these pupils of an eternally patient father and mother um, who expect and anticipate that we're going to make mistakes along the way, that we're going to err, we're going to blunder and bumble about, but that they will persevere in, in, in bringing us home. And so in light of that framework, we, we try to kind of reconceptualize what, what salvation is, what heaven is, what what judgment is, what, what uh, repentance is, what's the purpose of the atonement. And we think that they all have meanings that have to be rethought in light of the founding restoration story. There's a section in your book, and it's in chapter five, and it talks about we're running this race of life and that God isn't this sovereign, vengeful, hateful, angry wrathful God who's going to deny us the winner's cup or grant us the winner's cup. He's in the race with us. He's running the race with us. And that, that, that hit me so hard. And you know what? I think I listened to that on the audiobook, and I believe that's Fiona's voice, that's right? Fiona. <laughs> I thought that was so cool. And it just hit me so hard. And may maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And as far as thinking of the struggles here on earth and then struggles like maybe in framing it in that with that faith crisis in mind or or any struggle is i'm i'm struggling with my faith i'm struggling with god i'm struggling in this race on earth but god is running that with me if you could talk a little bit about that yeah well you know what happens early in the in the in the christian past and happens really once the latin church fathers begin to get involved in the scene tertullian and and, and augustine and they come from this highly legalistic background. And so God becomes this sovereign lawgiver that we are afraid of offending. And Christ becomes our, our defender before the wrath of God. And the whole thing is, is framed in the language reminiscent of a courtroom trial. And we think that we inherit that language as Latter-day Saints. We inherit it because it's so much a part of Protestant thinking of the 17th, 16th and 17th centuries. And as a, as a consequence, we always feel that we're under a magnifying glass, that we're always being appraised, that we're always being evaluated and judged. And we think that that's a pretty uh, 
a pretty corrosive way to think about ourselves and our relationship to God. And, you know, my wife has really made central in our thinking and in our writing that moment in the book of Moses when Enoch ascends to the presence of God and he, and he sees that God is weeping. And there are a couple of things that are more important than I think we've, we've realized about this scene. It's not just that God is capable of emotion. It's not just that we learn that God the Father does have a body part and passions. But it's that we learn that he's not sovereign. If things were going the way that he wanted everything to go, he wouldn't be weeping. So clearly, he is suffering with us through our, our, our grief and pain. It's an empathic weeping. Uh, he tells Enoch specifically he's weeping because of the misery that he sees his children immersed in. And, and, and to my mind, that changes everything. That changes everything. God is no longer this, this judicial, frightening figure that we have to appease somehow. But he is somebody who literally is is suffering vicariously with us, and um, and and that's what we mean by by saying he's he's running the race with us, so to speak, in a very very real way. We um, we also think that it's just really imperative that we understand what things we do suffer by way of affliction, of woundedness, or of of, of doubts and struggles with our faith. Our are part of an educative process. They're not punitive, uh, and they're not necessarily indicative of our inclination towards evil. We think that we need to have a, a more benevolent and patient and loving and kind attitude toward our own failings, because our, our Father and Mother in Heaven certainly do. And this is another insight that comes largely from Fiona, from her work in the Book of Moses. It's really significant that when sin is addressed, in the garden, by way of an explanation to Adam and Eve, the Lord talks about sin as a form of bitterness that we have to experience in order that we can prize the good. We find that language also in DMC section 29, the identical language that we have to taste the bitter in order to know the good. So that also, I think, is a much healthier and more productive and more accurate way of thinking about those mistakes and errors and sins that we fall into, that they are necessary for us to learn, oh, that isn't that isn't a good way to go. Maybe we need to listen to this loving counsel and um, allow these experiences to be formative uh, rather than uh, causes of guilt or or, or, or self-reproach. So we also try to uh, make a, a clear distinction in this book between what we call the self-centeredness of guilt and the other-centeredness of remorse, that we think it's very healthy and useful and productive to hurt when we recognize the pain we've caused others. But we think an obsession with disappointing ourselves is, uh, is, is not all, always productive and useful, and it's not the kind of godly sorrow that, that is productive of anything good. So, um, so yeah, that's all, that's all I have to say on that. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, and, and I do recommend reading this book cause it, it, it goes into a lot of that and that's such a fantastic chapter. So thank you for talking about that, Terrell. And I, and I just wanted to ask as you were, as you've been talking so far, I've thought, okay, I wonder is the answer because I, I am, and I wonder if I'm putting too much, too much attention on many of these, I hesitate to stay small issues, but they feel small now that now that I think the big issue is God and I have a problem with God and I have hard and hard time believing in him lately. 
and maybe that's too strong to say too, but maybe is 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 that is that the answer is to put more focus on God as you know as as they are parents they they are our, you know eternal parents and less so on these smaller issues that that seem to harrow me up so much i don't know if you have any thoughts on that yeah i do no i do um i think what what happens is that latter day saint teachings are so distinctive and we have been such outliers in the american religious tradition and we are cultural outliers today that we've got two forces working toward the same end. External forces that marginalize us and consider us other, and interior forces that celebrate how different and unique and other we are. (laughs) And so going all the way back to the 19th century, there's been this tendency to emphasize our peculiarities. And so we talk about our distinctive doctrines. We talk about our distinctive history. We talk a lot about gold plates, and we talk about modern prophets, and, and that's all well and good. But I think it's important to remind ourselves that the institution is a vessel for a set of teachings and truths and principles that are meant to connect us back to the divine, back to our Heavenly Mother and Father, and to see the church as, an, as a resource and as an instrument that, that fosters and makes possible our experience of the divine. And if we think of the church in those terms, then it seems to me we worry less about the kinds of things that have been foregrounded. You know, what was going on with the priesthood band? What was going on with horses in the Book of Mormon? What was going on? Not not that those things don't all have their place, but if we have missed the point that Joseph Smith's teachings reveal to us a God who is more loving, more accessible, more determined to bring us all home than any other construction of God in religious history, then that seems to me that's where our focus is supposed to be. And and the rest can fall into its relative significance or insignificance in light of that. But, you know, it seems to me that that this problem is evident in, in the kind of language we hear so often at fast and testimony meetings, right? So we get this kind of a kind of template where we're supposed to stand up and say, I know the Book of Mormon is true, and I know Joseph Smith was a prophet. Well, I espouse those beliefs too. But but why aren't we hearing more? I had this experience of the divine. I had this experience of, of love coming from Heavenly Mother and Father. I had this experience of the reality of Christ's atonement. So it seems to me that our language doesn't often enough reveal what should be the focus and substance of our faith, which, as Joseph Smith said, is the fact that Jesus Christ really lived and died and and rose again on our behalf. He said that was the the, the centerpiece and the foundation of our faith. And all of this other stuff is meant to support that. Modern scripture, modern revelation, uh, the principle of, of, of personal revelation, modern prophets, temple, all of that is to reinforce that prime um, purpose, which is to reconnect us, to make us at one with God and Christ again and with the rest of the of the human family. So I think we have to work kind of against the grain of our culture to, to keep the center, what should be the center of our faith. 
And so, no, you're absolutely right. Um, if you, God needs to be the topic of, of our conversation and the focus of our discipleship. And if, if you're wrestling with that, then that's an important wrestle. That's not inconsequential. And, um, and I, I, I think that, that we have the resources in the restoration to establish a correct understanding that lends itself to greater faith, that lends itself to a moral and aesthetic and logical appeal that I think most theistic systems don't have. Um, I, you know, I, I particularly love the King Follett discourse. I think it gives us the most reasonable and appealing conception of, of God. I could, I would find a hard time believing in the God of classical theism, just kind of, there just always was this giant Santa Claus in the sky that just happened to love us and, and be like us. I find it much more plausible to believe that, that this spirit matter is eternal, that, that we're progressive beings. We, we, we hunger for knowledge and, and for greater love and for greater light. And God has gone before us and learned that path. And he is trying to bring us along in his wake. I mean, that's beautiful. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of Richard Dawkins, the most famous atheist of our day, who once said on, on NPR, oh, I could believe in God if he were just a, a super evolved, a super developed human being. And, of course, that comes much closer to the conception we have, which, um, I mean, just looking, looking at human history, at the progress we've made, not just technologically, but morally, right? We still have a ways to go, right? But, but we have come to appreciate largely, right, this, the sanctity of, of life. We understand that at least in principle that all people are equal. We understand in principle that we're responsible for our neighbors. So it's clear to me that there's something in the human spirit that is drawn to light, that is drawn to truth, and in the individual and collective sense both, one can see that movement through time, through history. And so our conception of God, it seems to me, is just the logical culmination of, of, of all of that. So I find Mormonism the most rationally appealing theological system, as well as the most spiritually satisfying. Terrell, I had, I had another question. And as, and as you were talking, it kind of, there, there's like a part one and a part two. Part one is, I, it feels like there's this heavy weight, weight on me that that I, I've never felt before. And, and I feel like it has to do with God. And so is there any hope in, in that going away as I continue to try to follow him and do the best I can to learn the gospel and, you know, all of the, you know, A, B, and C, all the above. And then am I crossing or have I crossed a threshold? Like, is there, is there a point of no return where because right now I feel like, okay, I will never have that simple faith again, or I will never feel as, you know, a child again. Um, I will never, you know, have that simple, yeah, that, that simple faith that I can just kind of, that, that I've experienced my whole life. And maybe that's a problem if, if it's just a simple faith and all I do is, you know, <laughs> go to church and then not think about it anymore. But can can you speak to that? Is is there a point of no return? And will is there hope that this weight of something about God will leave me? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think the story of the garden has beautiful application as kind of a as kind of a 
model for our lives. You're right. We all start in the garden. And uh, we're all children. And we lose our innocence as children. And most of us start as these wide-eyed, excited converts or, or young members of the church. And then at some point, many of us leave the garden. We find ourselves on the outside. And it's clear, it seems to me, from the trajectory of the Bible, which is wasn't composed having in mind that it was all going to form this totality, but it does form this magnificent totality because we're in the garden, we leave the garden, and then the book of Revelation, we're returned to the tree of knowledge, or the tree of life. Um, and there's this wonderful vision, right, of John, in which we're, we're back there, but in now in this exalted condition. It reminds me of something that the novelist uh, Marilyn Robinson said. Uh, she said that there's, there's such a thing as an earned innocence. And so I take that to mean, and it, and it seems to, to have application in my own life, that we can return <clears throat> to a condition of trust and of faith and confidence and a kind of childlike delight in the goodness of life and in the abundance that the gospel opens up to us. But it's not going to feel like it did the first time. Um, you know, once you've seen God weeping, you know that life has a tragic dimension to it. And you know that there's a cost and a price that has to be paid. And that even in his exalted place in heaven, there are still tears that our father experiences. So I think we, we can return to the garden, but it's with a faith that has been deepened and that has been tried and that in many cases has progressed from a thinking certainty to a felt faith. And I think that's okay. I think you need to find refuge in DNC 46, where we have this enumeration of spiritual gifts, and we're told to some is given to know, and to some is given to believe. And so you may never attain to that place where you go to bed at night just absolutely confident and serene in your faith. You know, C.S. Lewis once said, we're called to live lives of cheerful insecurity. <laughs> and so I, I think that there's nothing wrong with recognizing that we have different spiritual gifts. You may not have the gift of knowledge. Yours may be the gift to believe. And to me, that's a beautiful gift because it means that you're promised that you have the ability to persevere in the face of uncertainty to renew your commitment as an act of free will every day, to trust where there's no guarantee, to risk being wrong and be vulnerable. And I think that that's a beautiful way to live your life once you come to accept that as the condition of your discipleship. And uh, I, I think there's nothing more beautiful than somebody standing up at the pulpit on a fast Sunday and saying, I hope the gospel is true. I trust my mother and father in heaven live. I believe these things are true. And, uh, and let that suffice as the testimony that you have. You used a term at the beginning. I wish I could remember exactly how you put it. You, you, you talked about faith uh, crisis, faith challenges, faith reformulations, wrestle. or faith yeah. wrestling. And, uh, and I think, I mean, 
look at the New Testament record, right? The apostles, eyewitnesses, living companions of Jesus Christ. And they go up and down, back and forth, wrestling and trying to figure out who was this figure who walked among us. So, um, you know, I, I'm glad I'm not a cow that grazes in the field contentedly. I'm glad that I'm tormented continually by uncertainties and irresolved questions because that's what propels me to, to look, to search, to seek, to strive. And I think that's what we're, we're made for. And uh, so reconcile yourself to that striving, hungry, thirsty, yearning self that, uh, that you're discovering. This is a Saints Unscripted original podcast and is hosted and executive produced by me, Jacob Watson, and Saints Unscripted. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll catch you next time.